Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Uphill Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Johnston, co-founder of Uphill Athlete. Today, I'm going to be speaking with new Uphill Athlete coach, Kylie Toth. Kylie comes to us from Canada and has a long and storied history, actually, in both the sports of speed skating and schemo, ski mountaineering racing. And she started her career as an athlete when she was very young. I think it was three, if I recall Kylie, Kylie telling me correctly. Um, and was a speed skater till um, up till through university, around 20 years old. And she uh, started moved over into ski mountaineering and then finally into ski mo racing and has been the, I think, seven times uh, Canadian national champion and been attended a number of world championships for the Canadian team and has a broad background in training as well in coaching and uh, is an accomplished climber, mountaineer, and steep skier as well. So quite a broad uh, uh, set of skills that give her an exceptional ability to help athletes achieve their, their potential. And so I'm really excited to talk to Kylie today. Welcome, Kylie. It's great to have you. Thanks for making the time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. It's uh, a privilege to be on your podcast. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I think some people feel, I, I often, when I email people about these podcasts, I, I, in the subject line of the email, I'll put podcast victim. And, uh, and, uh, but I'm hoping it's not, I hope you don't feel too victimized by this. Um, well, great. Uh, I, I think you have a fascinating story that I think people will really uh, be interested in hearing or resonate with a lot of folks. And, you know, you, you've had an athletic career that started as a child, essentially, and, you know, with a, with a really organized sport that now and then you have transitioned to, you know, these unconventional kind of mountain sports that that we do and that we train people for and that we love so much. And I think that's, you know, that's a similar background to mine. And, um, you know, I know the impact and what I carried with me from those years of training for swimming and then ski racing that, that I trained, that I, I carried with me those ideas that I had accumulated into these unconventional sports. And so I want to hear from you about you know, how that, those early years have impacted you. So why don't you start with you know, like where you are from and where, how you got into this crazy sport of speed skating. Sure, yeah. Um, well, I'm from Canada, so um, in the Rockies. Um, I grew up in Calgary, which is a, a, a big city in the foothills. And uh, I got into speed skating when I was five because um, my dad had a college roommate whose um, kids, he put his kids into it. And uh, he, those kids later went on to be multiple Olympians, which is cool. But um, yeah, just sort of thrown into to, uh, speed skating. In Canada here, skating is part of our culture, kind of like, um, you know, cross country skiing. Almost all the boys play hockey. Um, and uh, the girls, girls play hockey too now, but we pond skate or outdoor skate. And uh, yeah, so just started recreationally. I had an older brother and my parents didn't want to drive to more than one place. So I did everything he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. 
And so they had a, a real, uh, an organized youth program there in Calgary then for, for speed skating. Yeah, we uh, a club level. So we all started in clubs. I was in the Calgary club. And yeah, it starts very casually kind of once a week and then um, moves to twice a week and you progress as you get older. Um, yeah, at that time, um, there wasn't a, a definitive bridge between club and higher level. I think I was one of the first kids uh, at about age 12, 13, who um, migrated through there. And uh, at that time, you kind of went from your provincial team to um, the national training center if you were uh, skilled. And, and that was kind of my journey. I stopped regular school in grade seven uh, and went to a sports school. Um, so I went to school maybe three hours a day and uh, I trained twice a day, um, you know, five, six days a week, starting at age 13. Um, and uh, at the time, I'd say I was really intrinsically motivated. It, it was driven more by me. I, I wanted to succeed. Um, and, you're, uh, you're not a you're not kind of a driven person then would you say well, no not at all <laughs> not at all no you're very laid back low-key well so that there's there probably was no 400 meter oval there until the olympics came to town right yeah yeah so that really changed the the landscape here with uh the uh indoor olympic oval being built and uh made calgary an awesome place to train for speed skating now I did the the short track speed skating, so the hockey mm -hmm. rink style kind of derby looks like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's a crazy looking sport. I love watching yeah. it. Yeah, it's super exciting. I like watching it too, um, and that's what I I did mostly for for uh, my speed skating. In my last few years, I delved into long track. Yeah, I was wondering if you put a five-year-old on a 400-meter oval, that's going to be kind of a daunting thing to throw them out there and have them, you know, they're going to look at that huge oval and think, how am I going to get around this? But it makes more sense that you might put the younger kids onto the hockey rinks and um, yeah, train them, it, start them there. It's a lot more enjoyable for them. And uh, I do have a funny story. I have a news article about my very first race and and it was at a, a small town and it says kylie doesn't start with a bang because at that time they shot real guns to oh, yeah. start you and i i just started bawling they shot the gun and <laughs> like terrified uh, I, and then i took off and i came second but everyone thought it was funny <laughs> that, that is yeah i imagine did your parents have to come and comfort you um to, to the to get the crying stopped towards the end of the race yeah but now they <laughs> use these digital sounds which mm. i think is a little less cowboy but uh. yeah and probably a little less shocking too yeah 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 a lot of the sports i mean when i was a kid with swimming it was always a gun i mean it wasn't you know they weren't shooting live rounds or anything yeah. but it was yeah. blanks but it was always yeah. a gun quite yeah. startling um yeah and so you you talk about how you transitioned from kind of the you know, club team and worked your way through like a provincial team up on onto a national team was all that was that still all based in calgary yeah, so it was, it was all based in Calgary. I was lucky to 
uh, like you said, the Oval was here. So um, lucky to have that facility where I lived. You know, I think for parents, it's, a, it's well worth looking at where you live and what kind of resources are there. Because, yes. you know, if you yeah. have the best facility in your country, um, might be worth putting your kids or looking at that sport because, you know, sure. they don't have to move a lot. There's good programs. Um, yeah, so I, I did stay in Calgary and um, the Oval, it's called the Olympic Oval, is attached to the University of Calgary. So I was able mm. to go to school and skate. I didn't ever take a full course load, but uh, I did study and, and skate. And, and how did you manage, um, I'm sure there was a fair bit of travel involved with this in terms of, you know, for races, you couldn't, not everybody was going to come to Calgary to race. You had to go other places to race. And, um, yeah. and how did that tra travel work out? Did they, was that funded by the national program, the national team program? And were you doing a lot of international travel at that time? Yeah. So in, um, in Canada, we have a carding system. I don't know what it's called in the U S but, um, where you can, you get money from the government if you're at a certain level, um, and at the time, our cards were based on Olympic performance, um, not personal Olympic performance, but the sport as a whole. So um, speed skating, we do, Canadians do historically very well. So we had quite a few uh, development um, and national team cards. Um, but that's why I went, is starting in grade eight in a sports school, because, yeah, um, nationally a lot of the races were out east in Quebec so I spent a lot of time there and then yeah did a bit of international travel raced in China and Italy and Korea and it, it was really really um, a great experience in many ways but but also a different experience because I didn't experience um, many of the normal things a 13 to 18 year old would. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure you'd. So, and one of the things I'm always intrigued by because I've been around, you know, been part of that world a little bit myself and been around quite a few other athletes who have competed at that international level is what brought your career to an end? You know, was it voluntary? Did you burn out? Did you get injured? Did you just decide, okay, this is, I've gone as far as I, my genetic potential will allow because there's, there's a myriad reasons. And then, so I want to ask you that question first, and then I have a follow-up question on that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so when I kind of reached the pinnacle of speed skating, I was young, like 18, 19, um, and I was at, went to junior worlds and I came eighth in the world. And I think I had a lot of potential. Um, now I would say to be eighth in the world as a junior. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the subsequent years after that, um, I think there is a toll you pay for starting training very young. Um, you know, I was so focused. All I did was eat, sleep breathe, skating, and studying. And uh, uh, by the time I was about 20, 21, my motivation um, was really waning. And, and now as an older athlete and a coach, I would say um, I had a bit of burnout, you know, um, per, um, most likely. Also, uh, like this was early 2000s, late 90s. I don't think 
they were quite as skilled as they are now at training young people, um, you know, in their early teens. And so I think there was a little bit of physical burnout too. Um, so yeah, I decided that um, I'm, I have very academic parents and they always, you know, hammered in like sport isn't your life, you know, do, do school. And I think in my early 20s, I, I felt the shift to, to focus on university studies and kind of move on. I would say, yeah, I, in hindsight, I think I underperformed uh, in speed skating. I don't think I reached my potential uh, at all. And um, it's not something I regret in any way, but just uh, perhaps um, the system or the structure. I was one of the only people as young as I was in the center too. I should say that I trained with university aged people. So my mm. peers were in their twenties. Um, so I would say if you have like a highly motivated individual or child, um, you know, reining them in a bit sometimes maybe is, is valuable. I, I'm not sure. So that's how speed skating ended for me. And then when you, there, when you see, start to see these temptations to, you know, oh, if I wasn't having to train four or five hours a day, I could go ski in those mountains or climb or whatever. Then that's an interesting point. I touched on this with a podcast I did earlier with one of our other coaches, Maya, who I coached as a junior cross-country skier. And so what, when you finished your speed skating career, I mean, probably if it was like mine or other people I've known, it wasn't an abrupt, mine wasn't an abrupt end where you suddenly just said, okay, I'm throwing my skates away. I'm walking away from this sport. So you probably had some withdrawal symptoms, I would gather, and it probably took a while to really extricate yourself from that sport. Yeah, I'd say, I mean, I think just watching friends transition into retirement to have been in skating longer, I think the thing you miss is the organizing principle of sport. You know, having every time, every, you organize your life around your training in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so when I um, stopped, I, I initially I was kind of relieved. I think that uh, the pressure, even though um, it probably wasn't external, but the internal pressure I put on myself was a lot. So uh, that relief was lovely. But um, I did miss training. I I'm one of these athletes who loves training. Um, you know I. Um, I race and but I can't say even to this day it's it's my first love. I would train probably if I had no race to do. It's it's habituated. That's um, let me be stop you really quickly there because I want the, this story to go on but I know I'll forget. This. So let me ask you yeah. now that or or mention this. So this is some a phenomenon that I have noticed over years and years as both as an athlete as a coach. There are people who they only train because they love to race. And right. they, they kind of hate training. I mean, yeah. it's just like, oh, this is work. I hate doing it. And, you know, they're just, and, and then there are those like you and me who are, uh, we just love training. And I kind of think of us as, we're sort of like the, the, the workhorses, the Clydesdales of the world. You know, we can just do all this work and we love it. And it feels really good. And, oh yeah, we have to race every now and then. 
Mm -hmm. um, but it's those people that are more like the, the thoroughbreds out there that kind of hate the training, but you put them in a race and they just come to life. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think, um, yeah, there is a, a difference. And uh, I, I, like I mentioned, I had an older brother and um, he was like a racehorse and I was a Clydesdale. And um, it is funny, he did, he uh, got disenchanted with, with the sport sooner. And even as adults now, um, you know, he's motivated by a, a sport where he's with a team or he's playing or uh, mm -hmm. just more type one fun, I'd say. Yep. Mm -hmm. So it, it is interesting to see. But um, and yeah. it's so, oh, sorry. Excuse me. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say what, so the, the, you, you had this sort of gradual weaning away from the sport mm -hmm. at, you know, sounds like, you know, around early 20s that when that happened. And then what drew you to the mountains? I mean, obviously their, their proximity is close to where you live. Did you have friends that were involved in mountain sports or did you take this up on your own? How did, how did that transition happen? Yeah. So, um, I, I was fortunate cause, um, you know, my parents did keep me fairly well-rounded when we were young. We skied as a family almost every weekend. So the first time I was on skis, I was 18 months old. I could barely walk. Um, <laughs> that kind of family. Um, and so I knew, I knew how to ski. And then in university, I kind of made some friends who uh, were into going out and skiing. And, uh, you know, um, full, full disclosure, it is who I am. Like, I've never been a partier or drinker or done any drugs. But I'd say this was like my rebellion stage. Mm, you know, I mm -hmm. went, to, I was going to the ski hills. I skipped yeah. a few classes uh, really bad, but, um, mm -hmm. yeah, you know. You were, that was your wild side coming out, yeah. Yeah, like I think, you know, being caged in the structure of training for yeah. so long, even though I, I, I enjoyed many parts of training, like I said. Um, but, yeah, so then I went <clears throat> with them out skiing, and then a few of them were into uh, – backcountry skiing so that was my first exposure to that um and I but really how I got into the sport was there was a um uh, an older gentleman in Canmore um his name's Steve Sellers uh, and he was a Nordic uh, actually a Nordic coach and he did some schemo racing and family friends and he said to me you know, you have such a great engine, you should try this new sports of schemo. And, uh, you know, I love to train. So I, I thought, well, okay, I'll give this a try. And so I think the second time on backcountry ski gear, I was in a race. That's how I started. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it was not pretty. Like I, I've done a lot of hard physical things, but um, I remember I, I lost the course on the way down, so I didn't even finish. Oh. But, you know, like you can probably attest to, um, being an athlete, adversity kind of drove me. I was like, huh, I'm going to come do this race yeah. next the time. The harder it is, the more, yeah. Yeah, you want to rise yeah. to the challenge for sure. Yeah, yeah that's, that, that's that workhorse ethic. Exactly. So I was intrigued by it, even though my first experience was awful. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I just started to, again, it was kind of the Clydesdale mentality of, of getting into it uh, here in Canada. So I started racing, 
I think I did my first race when I was, what, about 26. And um, so I'm 37 now. So I've been doing it for 11 years. And uh, in our sport, my teammates called me the, the OG, the original gangster, because I'm the <laughs> oldest, I'm the, the longest person on our team. I just keep trucking. Um, you keep those young ones in order, I'm sure. I keep them on their toes for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and you, this, your, while the schema racing probably, um, scratched an itch that speed skating had scratched in a way, but with a, you know, whole new sport and, and being outdoors and, you know, being able to look at those crazy, big, beautiful mountains you have right there. But you went beyond this. I mean, you are, you know, a very, an accomplished, uh, steep skier, big mountain skier. You're an accomplished climber. Um, and so how did those transition? Was that just a natural offshoot of, you know, the schemo thing because you started to be exposed to people who did more of that kind of stuff? Yeah. So once again, like uh, schemo started, um, fairly structured, like I was mostly training for schemo and training and then um um just seeing all of the mountains around us and the possibilities i think sparked my interest it's hard to be i say it's hard to be a, a good schema racer in the rockies because there's or the, in western canada because there's way too much good skiing it's, <laughs> it's hard to stay focused uh, to train on your tiny skis when there's you know good powder and adventures um so it's interesting how i approached um schemo racing while i did structured trained i certainly gave myself a lot more leverage for to adventure because you know during the period from age 26 to now i i've had two children as well um two two little boys and um, in order to stay in a sport for as long as I have, you have to find some balance. Um, I couldn't uh, train super anally uh, all the time and, and have longevity. I think sometimes to the confusion of my teammates, they, they're baffled how you know I come out and do so well and um, maybe train a little less concrete. Um, but then I have that huge history of racing. So a huge exactly. base. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah, that's, that's, you know, irreplaceable. And you know, I'm again, being through my experience that what you did through your, you know, those really impactful years through puberty and, you know, just your teenage years up to in your 20, early twenties, when your body is so, hungry to adapt to whatever you're going to do. I mean, whether you, you sit on the couch, well, your body gets really good at sitting on the couch. You, you know, do train five hours a day. Your body goes, Oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. Okay. I'll do that. I'll get ready for that. Well, and yeah, that was one thing that attracted me to this sport is, I mean, in my mind, it's the best sport in the world. I can train uh, backcountry skiing and trail running and mm-hmm. all these fun things when you're used to like you you said staring at the bottom of a pool or lapping <laughs> like a little hamster um, this sport is is pretty engaging and uh, yeah. the places you get to see are like I think that's 
the biggest thing I've enjoyed about Schemo is, is the places it's taken me. Um, very, especially in Canada, some of the views I've had, very few people get those. And um, it's never lost on me, those really unique experiences and uh, very motivating to, you know, get better at the craft or, uh, and even just get out there to, to see those special places. So, yeah. And, and I think having a sports mindset or like a conventional sport history, like you and I, you know, we, we approach some, the mountains maybe occasionally a little bit differently. It's like, um, I know in our world, uh, FKTs or, or I, sometimes I don't like that term, but like (laughs) moving efficiently, uh, through the mountains, uh, is is super intriguing because you know I'm I, in Canada here. There's a, a rich history that I I really do respect of of mountaineering and uh, the ways things were done. But um, you know you can look at some of these multiple day traverses and and be fascinated by the possibility of um, or the limits of human performance. Like, can this be done shorter? Um, and you know, it's, it's interesting. I wouldn't say it's necessarily to be like, you know, Hey, look at me. Uh, I'm so great. I did it in such a short time. Uh, but that Clydesdale athlete in me is just intrigued by the potential to, to make something more efficient or, um, on the steep ski aspect, we are starting to ski a lot of faces that are traditionally climbed. So looking at the, the, you know, classic climbs and, and, you know, literally with little pens being like, Oh, that might go, Mm -hmm. uh, stuff like that is, it really keeps it fresh and interesting. And I think that mindset is from athletics, honestly. Yeah. Sure. I, I completely agree. Um, yeah, I, I, that's ironic. I just watched the movie last night as well. The, the one that the Nims story. Oh, and yeah. was, I was really struck by his, uh, his uh, ascent of K2 and his unwavering belief in himself. Like, yes. um, I think yeah. that is a, something I see in people who really change the game. They respect people and, and the people before them, but they're not, but they're willing to push um, past what some the limitations those people set, and I think that that's pretty pretty amazing. But it was cool to see how his confidence inspired the rest of the team, which or the rest of those other the other teams that were in base camp, because clearly when he showed up, they were defeated and mm-hmm. pretty much ready to pack up and, and go yeah. home. Yeah. And here comes this crazy guy who's, you know, dancing and having a party at an 18,000 foot base camp. Yeah, I, I think that the, in mountain sports, maybe unlike um, athletics, there, there isn't much of a shortcut for just time in the mountains. You know, there's so much you acquire. And especially like NIMS, a lot of that environment was his home environment. You know, yeah. we see that in the Rockies too. Um, very accomplished alpinists come because there's very there's hard alpine climbs and winter climbs and and it's awesome it's so good to see them here but um, 
also there has been some accidents, really bad ones. Um, and, yeah. you know, it, to locals and non-locals, but um, I think spending a lot of time in your, in your home backyard, you know, there's no replacement for, for the nuances of your terrain, you know, and, and so sure. I think, and you I know, think, oh, go ahead, excuse me. Uh, maybe when finish. you travel to different places, like, it, you know, getting to know and respecting and spending as much time there as you can with locals and uh, is fairly invaluable. Uh, that's just my perception. Yeah. yeah, and I guess having said that, moving a little bit more into the climbing side, um, out of with ski alpinism or, or ski mountaineering has been fascinating because it's just a different way to explore similar mountains. Um, you know, I, I know Steve, uh, or sorry, Scott, uh, sorry, Steve, your names, okay. they're both. Well, um, I, I'm the, I'm the good looking one. How about that? Yes. So. <laughs> Steve has talked about Mount Temple, for example. So that mountain, it has a scramble route that, you know, is, is super easy. It also has mm -hmm. one of the steepest, most desirable couars to ski called the Aimer. And then it has really wild alpine routes. And so it's super fun as a, as a, a mountain enthusiast or mountaineer to pick away at the different crafts and, and try to progress to climb the same mountain. It's, um, and that's one of, I don't know, like, thousands and thousands out here. It's like a lifetime yeah. of, of uh, adventures if you want, but um, yeah, you know, I, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not a tourist advertisement, but just uh, <laughs> people coming here and even seeing some of these places is, uh, is euphoric just to gaze upon these crazy mountains, you know, truck way back in the Columbia ice fields to the Mount Alberta area and, and look at them and intimidating for sure. Oh, wow. I'm sure they are. It can be really intimidating to <laughs> think, Oh my gosh, we're going to, I mean, uh, I mean, Mount Robson is like that it's an incredibly intimidating mountain to look at because it's yeah. like you said, it's so daunting to see these thousands of mountains, you know, and which ones are, where should you start? Um, yeah. And you, you probably are not going to start on the north face of Mount Temple if you haven't ever climbed there. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I will say, though, just because I'm a female, <clears throat> which maybe brings a slightly different perspective in that question, you, you know, where should you start? Um, I think for speaking more to females here, you should start somewhere. I think they're like starting is is the key. Uh, I think for females um, in gen generalization, it, it's hard for us to stick our necks out there and try something harder, um, especially if you don't have a male partner. Um, and just, I think from personal experience uh, and seeing other girls, I'm the biggest cheerleader when I see a girl go, go try something, whether they succeed or fail. Um, and I think part of part of what I've, I've, I've observed is um, like even with John or or uh, Steve, you know, they went through this phase where they just threw themselves out there and 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 went and tried over and over different things. And there's very 
there's fewer women who are willing to do that. And I think the skills you acquire from the try is, is pretty big. I, and while I say that, I mean, you know, keep it within your ability, but I do see a tendency for women to keep it so far in their ability that they're not pushing themselves. Um, not all. There's many crazy, wonderful <laughs> women. Yeah. But, you know, I'll, I'll just share one example. I, I was skiing with a male partner on a, an 11,000 foot peak, 11,000 or this winter. And it was a little firm and icy. And my, the partner I was with said, um, we should down climb. I don't think we should ski. And in my gut, I knew I had it. I was like, no, I, these conditions, I can ski these. And I started to down climb because I defaulted to uh, his expertise. Not because he'd had more time, but because he was male, actually. I know this is, no, I'm just being I, very real with you. Absolutely, um, yeah. And partway down, I clicked into my skis and I said, no, I know, I, I know I have this. And then I skied down. And, you know, just steps like that, like really as a female learning when you, um, when you've got something and, and stepping up with that, I think is, is a, a big skill for female mountaineers. Um, and yeah. Yeah, I, I would completely, I mean, I don't have, certainly don't have the personal experience you have, yeah. but I, I would, my observation is this is the same. And I think, you know, we can't deny traditional roles. I mean, the, yeah. the, you know, evolutionarily men have been the risk takers and, yeah. you know, that's still in our genes today. And the women are less risk or more risk averse because they're the ones who need to be taking care of the children. I mean, it's, I mean, yeah. I, I understand that's sort of probably sounds sexist in this day, but I think, you know, we do have a, a genetic evolutionary predisposition in those areas. It's wonderful that that's being broken down, you know, in the last years and that, you know, women aren't constrained like they have been in the past so much. Well, Scott, would you say even, I mean, the ones where you get up really early and you do nothing, those, those just do suck. But um, some of the failures, I'm sure you would say, you know, failure is an interesting word because it was still a really interest, like fun adventure or maybe not fun, but engaging, you know, it's not, yeah. we're still in the mountains. And, you know, if you go three quarters of the way to your goal, um, there is still some satisfaction, which is maybe different from conventional failure in sport. I'm not sure. That's oh, I, I think that's, that's a good point. And maybe we need to come up with a different term when I know I'm using, I'm throwing the term failure around and that sounds really dramatic and, you know, like you know, kind of black and white and clearly these things weren't black and white, you know, the, yes, we did not achieve our goal of climbing such and such, but we perhaps achieved a bunch of other goals that you know are going to help us in the future. So yeah, maybe failure. I should stop using. Should stop saying that. But oh, I, no, it's I, I the thought, right term. Yeah. I think of it as failing gracefully. You know, it's yeah. like yeah, yeah that's, just that, accept I, it and move on with it. Yeah. Interesting about your just as an observer, your trajectory as a Clydesdale is you. I think all Clydesdales reach a point where they realize that training smart is actually important too. And uh, I think that's why your book is, you know, I first read it before I 
even knew you guys, uh, is so useful for, for people. Because I, I really like the distinction that you make uh, between exercising or, or recreating and training. And I think as people with an athletic background know the difference, you know, you have to do some prescribed training to reach a goal. But um, a lot of people with mountain goals, you know, just want to go out every day for eight to 10 to 12 hours, or not every day, but four to five days a week. And they wonder why they're actually getting worse at climbing. <laughs> um, you know, it, yeah. there's definitely a difference between the training. And when, when, and the, for, when the book came out, the first book, Training for the New Alpinism, came out, and Steve and I were on a book tour. At our earliest stops, we actually met with some, you know, I wouldn't call it heckling, but, you know, climbers in, yeah. the, in, the, in the audience going, wait a minute, you're telling us, you know, we can't go climbing every day and we should go for a run instead. Yeah. And, and, and it, was a, it was a little shocking to us because we thought, whoa, whoa, we didn't mean to cause a controversy with this. And, and I, what we yeah. ended up kind of settling on was to tell people that, no, we're all a, I'm in favor of people who want to recreate in the mountains and, and do what I call random exercise. You know, just when, when the conditions are good, they're going to go do this. And, or the conditions are good mm -hmm. for skiing, they're going to go skiing. Um, or, oh, my yeah. friends are going to go do blah, 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 and I'm going to jump on the train and do that with them. I don't have any problem with that. But what we were trying to do with our book was say, hey, you know, there's another way. And, you know, yeah. you, if you have stagnated, let's say, in your, in your progression as a climber, maybe you should think of trying something like this, you know, that not every yeah. day has to be, you and I have had this conversation before about, you know, not every day has to be you going out to break the world record. Uh, but I, on, on the flip side, too, I think it, for some people who are really busy, like, um, you know, moms or people with demanding jobs in a city or, or downtown kind of nine to five, the prescribed training uh, mentality can actually work really well. Um, because you, you can, you know, they don't have time to go out for eight to 10 hours very often. So, yeah. um, you know, it just different, different stages in people's lives, I think. But um, yeah. 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 And so you're, are you, are you going to be racing this winter? Yeah. So originally I had, um, I've been racing a long time, <laughs> a long time since I was five actually. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I had, at, before COVID I had thought I, I would be done and move my sights to kind of grand course racing and, uh, ski mountaineering, uh, adventure skiing. Um, but uh, the sport that I do, Schemo, is going to be in the Olympics in 2026. And uh, currently um, in Canada, I, um, I've been the Canadian champion for the last seven years, I guess. So a long time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was, um, I, I had thought, you know what, I think I'm going to, I'm going to keep trying again, because when I thought about what I would do if I wasn't training for Schemo, I thought I would probably still do most of the same things, being the Clyde, Clyde still. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, well, I might as well keep going. Uh, and also, 
uh, coming back to our training discussions, the last number of years, I've adventured more than I've trained. Mm -hmm. So I feel kind of motivated. I know what it takes to be a high level athlete. Um, and admittedly, I, I wasn't doing that myself. I was mostly just, um, you know, I ran and I worked out and I'd adventure, but I didn't do a lot of heart rate training. Um, mostly cause I just wanted a bit of a break, um, and to sure. keep it sustainable for, you know, nine years. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm going to race again and I'm Great. motivated for that and, and uh, see, see where it goes, you know? Oh, that's fantastic. I, I commend you for that spirit and to be able to sustain it. Well, you know, being a mom and, and having, you know, all these other obligations I'm sure you have in your life, but to keep that fire burning, that's wonderful. I'm really glad to see that. And, and you know, the, the Olympics aren't that far away. So, you know, no, it's like and, you have uh, enough time now to kind of put that Clydesdale head down and push towards a singular goal. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and you know, you have to do what you preach too. I, I, I coached and I coach now with you mm -hmm. and uh, I'm a big fan of trying. And so I, you know, even if I don't reach my ultimate goal, I know along the way there'll be so many rewarding experiences that yeah. it's just a win-win. Um, and an example for my kids, like there's a, our first race is this Saturday. Um, it doesn't count for anything. It's a fun race. And uh, my 10 year old is going to do it too. Oh. Um, and I have a friend who's going to help him transition because that's really hard taking off the skins and getting sure. into the tech findings when you're 10. But yeah, I'm pretty stoked to race beside him. Um, we that's do laps great. of a course. So is there a know, kids, is the kids race shorter or a different course or? Yeah. So it is shorter. Um, it, it's uh, quite a bit shorter, mm -hmm. uh, fewer laps of the same uh -huh the same uh, uphill and downhill but um yeah it's um from i think i've spoken to you about this before one of my main motivators is i love to learn and so um i even sought out a, a different coach who's more technically minded um mm -hmm. so i can learn personally but also for development you know i have a 10 year old son this is going to be an olympic sport it'll be really cool to bring some of that technical knowledge to my, my country kind of, you know? Yeah, sure. Um, so Absolutely. it's a really exciting time, I think, to be involved in Schemo in, in uh, the world, like in the US and Canada, everywhere. It's certainly exploding in popularity, just like backcountry skiing is. And it's kind of as an offshoot, I think more and more people are, are getting into it. And it's, it's, it, uh, you know, having my background, extensive background in cross-country skiing, I think I told you this once, I think of it as cross-country skiing on steroids. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it's the same kind of deal, but the hills are longer and bigger and the downhills are faster and scarier and the equipment's yeah. still crap for the, for the downhill part, you know. It's, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I can relate to it very well because of my background. I think it's a wonderful sport and I like watching it. And, I, yeah, I, I'm I mean, glad. I'm glad it's going to be in the Olympics. I think it'll be a great spectator sport. I think it's really. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it'll be really neat, and uh, the crossover to normal backcountry skiers, like 
for efficiency and travel is is pretty interesting too so yeah um, for sure yeah. good a lot of carryover um, yeah. and uh, but those silly little skis i bought a pair of those silly skis a few years ago and i have to say there's i still think they're silly skis <laughs> they're oh. they're so hard to ski on i can't when i watch people who are really really good these guys just straight lining those you know, and it's all chopped up manky snow they're skiing through. I just think, how do they do that? It's so crazy. Oh, I know. I, I had this week, I went out um, in the Lake Louise area where we live. And for whatever reason, I, I just had my race gear. I, my other skis I had forgotten. So I had to wear my full race kit backcountry skiing. And I said to the people who hadn't skied with me before, I was like, I do know how to ski. Um, (laughs) Believe it or not. (laughs) You know, about eight inches of wind wind crust on the slope. And with, I'm not super heavy. And then the skis weigh nothing. So it it was, it was humorous. But, uh, (laughs) you know, I always, I said to them, I said, oh, it's good training. That's what I always say when stuff's like, it's good training. Must be good training, yeah. But it is a little, yeah, a little humiliating to have that kind of an experience. For sure, well, but you know. Well, yeah. good luck this winter. I really hope that you can keep your crown as the best Canadian woman skier. Um, yeah. yeah. And and so there'll be a. Is there a world championships this year? No. So um, next year there's a world will be mm-hmm. world championships. It's every second year, and I um, is. If things go according to plan, I do plan to to go there, um, bring my kids for a little while as well. So we'll see um, where life takes us. But uh, yeah, it'll be it'll be fun to race internationally again too. And uh, I, I, you know, those grand course races. If anyone is more of a recreationalist um, or on the fringes of schema, those have been some of my best memories in life is some of those races um they are incredible so an option for uh people who aren't world cup racers um are there any of those in canada you know there aren't yet um Mm -hmm. you know hopefully at some point the limitation we have here is the infrastructure um, we have such a huge country and such wild wilderness that yeah. a grand course race would be like, <laughs> you know, true, true backcountry. Yeah. Yeah. No yeah. cell service, nothing. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a couple of them here that I know of because we have, a, I've worked with a lot of athletes that are training for them. One is the, the Grand Traverse, both of them in Colorado. And the other is the Power of Four that are yeah. you know, kind of like what we would, you know, sort of the less, I mean, a lot of very serious people do them, but they're, yeah. they op- they're open more to what we would call the in cross-country scheme, we'd call the citizen racer, you know, people who exactly. are more yes. recreational and they might be doing these races even on, you know, fairly heavy touring gear sometimes, yeah. not on the race gear. Yeah. Um, and I, there may be others in this country that I'm just not aware of, so forgive me for not recommending them, but yeah, those are great ways to, to get into the sport too, to, to have some yeah. experience of it. For sure. And then in, in Europe, I, I've done the Pyrmeta and the Metsalama. Those are incredible races. Uh, and then this year is P, the Patrol de Glacier PDG. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, great goals for people. Honestly, when I'm, when I'm done World Cup level, I'll, 
being the Clydesdale, I'll probably still be out there when I'm, you know, <laughs> 60 or 70 trucking right. along. <laughs> I hope so. I really yeah. hope so. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a really fun chat. Uh, Kylie, thanks so much for taking the time. I'm, I know you've got other things going on in your day. I don't want to hold you, um, but I really appreciate it. Any closing thoughts for us? Um, no, I, I thank you for having me. And um, yeah, I, I love learning from, from you guys, the history uh, and the research you've done, I think is really valuable and uh, looking forward to learning more. Mm-hmm. Well. Thank you. Thanks a lot for that. Um, well, I, again, I appreciate your taking the time and um, I hope people can get something out of this and enjoy our little discussion. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about what we do, please go to our website, uphillathlete.com.